Hey everybody, sorry on video today. If you're in the room, if you're online, you can't even tell the difference, but um, I'm sick and I won't get my COVID results back till Sunday, probably, so uh, we're doing it this way. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to uh, Psalm 27. If you're doing the devotional, you're going to hit Psalm 27 on your devotional Thursday of this week, which will be good. You'll get some, some time to slow down with that particular set of verses, but I want to read part of it to focus on what we're talking about today. We're going to focus on um, understanding what waiting means and what we're supposed to do or how we actually wait on the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at Psalm 27. For, I'm going to read verses 7 to 14. This is David calling out to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, my God. God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. There is a really big difference between what um, I would call just being stuck with God and waiting for God. Those aren't the same thing. And in fact, there's not, there's not just those two. There's, there's three possible options, right? Um, in the last century, there was a leader named G.K. Chesterton who, this is slide four, who talked about the drama of doctrine. And he said, orthodoxy or following God with faith um, has, it's like, it's like walking on a rooftop. It's dramatic. It's interesting. It's always relevant because it's always in the midst of toppling off on either side. In relationship to waiting for God, um, one side would be being stuck or being faithless. That is, you're stuck in a situation. There's stuff you could do. But you just don't. You just stop, and you don't do what you could do. And you say you're waiting on God, but you're not really. You're waiting for something God never said he'd do, or you're really not doing your part in what God has called you to do. On the other side is what I'll just call grasping, which is reaching out to take what isn't yours to take and to do what isn't yours to do, right? And the Bible refers to this as wickedness, right? So on one side, there is faithlessness, not doing what you are called to do. And the other side is wickedness or grasping, which is reaching out and taking what isn't yours to do and what is God's to do, if it's anyone's to do, right? Waiting is this tension between the two of those, where we do everything we have to do, and we do nothing that is not for us to do. Now, um, there are um, examples all through the Bible of people stuck, grasping, and waiting, right? If you— um, if you think about Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, um, he go, he's sent by God to preach to Nineveh that God is going to overthrow it and destroy the city, right? And he goes and he tells them that, and then he goes up on the hillside to sit under this gourd plant that grew up, and he's watching the city, waiting for God to destroy it. That's what he's waiting for. But he should have known, and in his heart he really did know, that God didn't want to destroy the city. He'd sent them to him, Jonah, there to preach judgment so that they would repent, and he wouldn't destroy them. And so Jonah was waiting for something God had no intention of doing, right? And people do that a lot. We wait for God, and we're like, I'm waiting for God to do something. 
Something that God explicitly says in the scriptures. He has no intention of doing for you. He doesn't believe in it. He doesn't want to do it, or he hasn't promised it. And we're sitting around when we really should be doing something else or hoping in something else, right? Um, grasping is when we, in wickedness, reach out and try to do something we have no business trying to make happen because we won't wait on the Lord and see what he's going to work out. So, for example, in um, 2 Samuel 3, there's this place where King Saul has died. David is the successor, but there's been a feud between the two families. And David decides the best thing to do is to take the leader of Saul's armies, Abner, and make him the leader over his armies, and so heal the breach between the two sides of the kingdom, Benjamin and Judah at that time, right? And the guy who was the leader of David's men, Joab, doesn't like that. Probably because Abner killed one of Joab's brothers in a former battle, but he killed him fairly in battle when Joab's brother was chasing him and trying to kill him, right? And so when Abner comes to be received by David, Joab goes out and sees him beforehand and stabs him in the stomach, like in the intestines, to kill him slowly because he wants to take revenge for his brother rather than heal the two tribes and see what God would bring about bringing peace. Right? And Joab is that kind of person. He does it three or four times of his story, ruining what David is trying to bring about by waiting on the Lord. Joab steps in and acts and usually kills somebody so that there can't be healing, there can't be growth, there can't be development, there can't be good long-term things can't happen because he wants to step in and take control of it himself, right? Job turns out to be, though in some ways a wise man, a wicked man, because he will not wait for the Lord. Contrast this with 1 Samuel 24, where um, Saul is still alive. He hates David. He's jealous of him. He's chased him all over Israel. Um, Saul goes into this cave to relieve himself, and David and his men are in the cave, and Saul doesn't know it. And David has a chance to kill Saul and to end him being chased so that he can finally become king. And in this case, it, God has already said David's going to be king. On one level, David is waiting for God to make him king, but on some level, he already knows he's going to be king. Doesn't that mean God wants him to kill Saul so he can become king? Like it, and actually, one of David's men says, let me just run through my spear. I'll kill him for you. And David says, no, I won't lay my hand on God's anointed. And so he cuts off a piece of his cloth to hold it up and say, I could have killed you. I didn't, right? That is, David believed that God would bring about his own work in his own time, and he wasn't willing to grasp in wickedness. Nor did he sit around, right? When it was time to act, David acted. There's another time um, earlier when David's a teenager where he goes to the lines of Israel's battle, and Goliath is standing in front of the people of God. He's, he's saying, look, Somebody come out and fight me. We'll fight one-on-one -on -one and that'll decide the battle. And all of Israel is waiting. That is, nobody wants to fight Goliath. But it's not because they believe in God and they're holding back or they're doing everything that they can do. They don't want to fight him. They, they're thinking about themselves and they don't want to lose. You see, in that situation, David's a man, a man of nothing but action. He's like, who is this guy? I'll go out and fight him right now because God is with those who face those who defy him. So this is the time to act. And then in 1 Samuel 24, he knows it's not the time to act. It's the time to wait. That distinction is what makes David great. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. And the worst moments of David's life is when he doesn't wait. When he reach out, reaches out and takes something that isn't his, Bathsheba, right? Or doesn't wait for that to play out, but instead steps forward and acts like Joab and has her husband killed in battle. 
or even when he counts the troops later on, instead of waiting and trusting that God has enough soldiers, right? All through the story, what makes David great and what makes other believers great is their willingness to act when they're supposed to act, not grasp at that which isn't theirs, and know when their work is done and it's time to call on God and wait for him. That is the drama of the doctrine of waiting for God. Now, so why is this so hard? And the answer is, is that we all have a certain kind of emotional baseline in all of this, right? That is, if you think about what is happening when you have to ask the question um, to wait for God, it's always a moment in which you're facing incredibly intense emotions, right? Oftentimes it feels like, or your life is at stake. Like it feels like if you don't do it, you're going to die, right? There's a place where Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and bless him before he goes out to battle and offer a sacrifice to God so that God will be with him in a battle. And, and Samuel doesn't come for like a week and his army starts to disperse. And Saul's like, look, either I make the sacrifice or all my men are going to leave and I'm going to die. Like it's, it, in, in Saul's mind, is life or death. But he is not allowed to offer sacrifice to the Lord. He's not a priest. He's not allowed to do it. He had, he had two options. He could wait longer or he could go to battle without making the sacrifice. And he could pray to God and ask him to be with him. But instead, he offers the sacrifice just before Samuel shows up. But you see, a lot of people go, oh man, Saul shouldn't have done that. Well, it was life or death in Saul's mind. And it always feels like that for us. It always feels like we're making a desperate choice. Right? And when things feel desperate, like there's some kind of salvation we need. Either it's temporal in the moment, it's revelational. We need God to tell us what the heck he's doing. Right? We feel desperate to at least know something so we can move forward. Or, like, finally salvational, like waiting on God to bring about what he will finally bring about. In all these situations, it feels desperate to us. And because of that, our emotions are surging with fear. When things are blocked and we can't get there and we have to wait for God, the emotion that comes up when your way is blocked is anger. You get angry that you're, you're in a situation where you can't win. Right? This is especially true of men, but it's true of everybody right? What tends to creep up then is also doubt. Am I even doing the right thing? Is God even there? Is he going to come through for me? What's happening? And sadness and disappointment. Like, it looks like you're just not going to get what you want. It looks like you're not going to get the salvation that you're hoping for. And all these emotions are very intense, and it makes us feel relatively desperate. And so this morning, or whenever you're listening to this, stop for a second. I don't want you to think about this abstractly. Right? I want you to wait, and I want you to choose a specific mental situation, like in your life, right now. I want you to think of one, and I'll wait for you. Okay? Um, it can be a temporal situation. Preferably, it'd be a temporal situation. Like, something that's happening in your life that isn't working out the way you want to, right? It's, you, you want somebody to, to be saved, or to believe, for their mind to be changed. You can't change their mind. You want something to give it work, right? Like, there's something dynamically happen in your life that you can't control, right? You're being mistreated in a way you shouldn't have been mistreated. Something's happening, and you want justice, or you want salvation, or you want something, and you can't make it happen without doing something you shouldn't do, right? I want you to think about a specific situation, or a specific thing where you're like, I feel like I can handle it, but I wish just God would tell me more about what he was doing, right? You're still waiting on God for something. Or if you're just kind of like, look, I'm just waiting for this, this living under the curse to be over, I'm waiting for that, right? 
Think about something. I want, you to, I want you to proceed because I want you to be emotionally invested. Because the reason why we fail at this is not because we can't think up the doctrine. It's because we can't face our intense emotions and we do what ought not to be done. Okay? Now, as you think about that, here's what waiting on the Lord means. Waiting on God means this. That we do everything that's ours to do and nothing more. Okay? We believers, right? We do everything that's ours to do and nothing more. Or another way that you could say it is this. Doing good while trusting God to work the good. Doing the good while trusting God to work the good, right? We are limited human stewards. Our scope of providence, that which we rule over, what we have sovereignty over, is narrow because we're very dependent and narrow creatures. And there are certain things we are called to do. We are called to do what the Bible calls good. We're called to, in faith, act in godliness. That is, do what we think God would want us to do. That's why it says in Romans 12 that part of the renewing of your mind is knowing God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right? Christians live in faith to do the will of God. And that will of God, if we really understand it, we know that it's good, and therefore it will please us, and in reality it is perfect. And, and that, in our specific lives, is the scope of our sovereignty, our providence. And we are to do good within that scope. But we don't work the good in the larger plan of God's glory and in his creation and his redemption. Only God can see the infinitely complex plan that he is working. And we are not in charge of that. Not even in our own lives to a certain extent. We don't determine when we live or die. We don't determine whether we succeed or fail in many ways. We have to leave that to the Lord. We do the good. But we trust God to work the good, even when we hit what seems like a dead end. So let's look at two parts of this. One is waiting on God as not attempting things that are under God's providence. And secondly, doing what is our stewardship, that is what is under our providence, our sovereign will. So first, let's look at waiting for God, what that means in terms of not grasping what is God's to do. In Scripture, this would be rejecting wickedness. Not grasping what is God's to do. In Scripture, there is this distinction between people who wait for the Lord to act and people who lie in wait to act wickedly or ruthlessly on others. Right? There are, there are people who wait for the Lord and there are schemers, in the, especially in the Psalms. And what, what David constantly says, and, and the biblical writers say is, I don't want to be a schemer, God. I don't want to be somebody who doesn't care what you told me to do, but I take moral sovereignty over everything. There's no good and evil. There's only what I can accomplish. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'll take it in my hands whatever I want to, whether it puts blood on my hands or dirt on my hands or stuff that isn't mine to take. I will do whatever is necessary to get whatever I want. Right? And the contrast there is the difference between that person, the wicked, and the wise or the faithful is the faithful know what they are in, what is in their hands to do and what is not in their hands to do. Right? In Psalm 27, right, what is David contrasting? Right? In, in Psalm 27, he's contrasting um, people who are willing to lie and to bear false witness and to accuse him of things he didn't do, right? In order to destroy him so that they can get what they want. You see? And he's like, I won't do that. I will wait on the Lord. See what he's saying? And, and he says, God, teach me your ways, 
And then he turns to everybody who's listening to somebody and says, wait on the Lord, right? So there are people willing to lie and make false accusations. And in contrast, David says, I don't want to be that. God, you teach me your ways, the way of truth, the way of telling the truth, the, the way of bearing truthful witness, right? And so therefore, I will wait on you. So you see the distinction? The distinction is wickedness and waiting on the Lord. The same is true if you look at, for example, Romans 12, where it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See the idea there? The idea there is, this is the New Testament, right? And the apostles writing, and he says, listen, it's not your job to get revenge. God is the avenger. He's the only just judge who knows exactly how much vengeance should be taken in what context, when, and in relationship to redemption. And you don't know that. That isn't your job. To leave room or space for God to do what he wants is to withhold our willingness to do something. That is, to wait on the Lord. Right? So in relationship to revenge, it says, don't take revenge, but make room for God. Or, functionally, wait on the Lord. In the book of Hosea, in... Um, in chapter 12, verses 5 and following, it says, um, it says, um, I'm going to wait on the Lord rather than be dishonest in my economic pursuits, right? Dishonest scales and, and, and pursuing business practices in such a way as exploit other people, right? Why? Because I, w- what's the temporal salvation I want? Well, wealth. We all want wealth. Everybody wants to not be in want, to not be in poverty, and everybody wants to have some luxury. There's nothing inherently wrong with luxury. You can pursue wealth, right? But what does scripture say? One, don't deny the Lord to do it. Don't wear yourself out to do it. And don't exploit other people to do it, right? And what Hosea says is there's people in his time who they want wealth, but they're willing to wear themselves out and exploit other people and lie and cheat in order to get that wealth rather than to do everything they can to build wealth and then wait on the Lord to make the difference. Right? Ultimately, the dilemma of waiting on the Lord is always this. Here's where I am, and here's where I want to be. And there is a gap, and I can't close it. What do you do? Right? Now, on one level, God is a creator, and he's made us to be creative. And maybe there's just another way. Maybe you're not choosing between wickedness and waiting on God. Maybe there's something you can do right now, and you can bring about a different thing. And you're free to do that. That's just called being resourceful. That's fine. In fact, we'll say in just a minute, that's good, right? But if there isn't another way, and there usually isn't, right? Usually you've worked through your resourcefulness and you're out of options. Now what, right? And the answer is, are you going to grasp? Are you going to reach out and take hold of something that you're not allowed to, that's not under your personal providence? And that I've labeled rationalization rather than just wickedness because None of, us, none of us say, well, I'm just going to be wicked. What we do is we rationalize something. We come up with an argument for why we're still good. We're still waiting on God. We still believe. We're still fine. We're still good people. But I'm going to take hold of something that I'm not supposed to take hold of. Right? So if you can't solve it with resourcefulness, the next temptation is going to be rationalization. And that's why you have to understand the emotional effect of your desperation to get what you want. And you have to be able to trust God enough to wait. 
to wait on the Lord and wait for him to make a way, for him to change things, for him to act. Ultimately, that's what it means to believe in God, to believe there really is a person out there who is working all things for the ultimate good of his purposes, which includes your good and goods he has purposed for you. And he really is out there working them, that his providence and his sovereignty is active in your life. You aren't living in just a series of random actions that are only changed by your will and the will of others acting within the economic or social sphere. To be a Christian means that you believe that God is the ultimate actor. And he brings about many temporal goods, and he will work everything for your ultimate good. So how do you, how do you, deal, with, how do you deal with that moment of emotion or that, that moment of temptation, that moment where you want to rationalize because there's no way to get through this resourcefulness? And the answer is just three like internal emotional things. The first is you've got to stop yourself. Because rationalization is always presenting itself to your mind. It's all emotion, your fear and your doubt and your anger and your discouragement is coming in emotionally and saying like, look, we, we can just do it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We can just steal a little bit. We can take what's not ours, but it, the world owes it to us anyway, right? Or we can hurt that person. Like, they'll be fine. Or we can do this and it doesn't really matter. Or, right? That's what your emotions are going to be presenting to you. And your mind is going to come up with a hundred arguments for how to rationalize grasping for what isn't yours to do and what isn't ours to take, rather than to wait on the Lord. And you have to be ready for that, and you have to stop yourself from reacting, right? And the second thing you have to do is trust. You have to trust God, even if you're going to die. Listen, there was a time when believers realized that there were things worse than death, right? Because after death, you're going to you're going to have done what you've done, and you're going to be the kind of person you made yourself. And that lasts longer than death. There are things worse than death. So even if you think you're going to die, like Saul, and that if you don't grasp for something, like your life is over, like literally over, right? Is it still worth it? And the answer is not if you believe in the sovereign Lord, not if you believe in the one who glorifies those who have faith in Christ, right? Because listen, if there was nothing worse than death, and if Jesus believed that, there would be no cross and there would be no salvation for you. To him, there was something worse than death, and that was your eternal death, right? But that's true for you too. The terms on which we die determines whether or not we believe that our physical death or our eternal death is worse. And you and I have to decide in faith which we believe, you have to trust God, even in the faith, face of what you think is going to happen, which oftentimes won't even happen. But even if it does, trusting God for his ultimate final glorification is better. He, God says that whatever we face in suffering in this world is transmitted to glory. Whatever we suffer in his name and in faith, he repays and he glorifies us on the basis of it. There is no wasted suffering, not in the economy of God and how he acts, right? And the last thing is you got to wait. You have to stop working and start praying. Waiting on the Lord is always an active act of prayer, repentance, fasting, trusting. There's some of us who we would never pray if we didn't have to wait on the Lord. If we did things and those things worked out, it would never be evident to us that we needed God. Sometimes it's only in the ruthless practicality of things not going our way and us being stuck that we'll actually turn to God and pray. Right? 
All right, let's look at the second thing quickly, which is um, waiting for God means doing what is in our um, stewardship to do, right? That the wider providence of the universe is God's and God's alone. But there is a providence, there is a sovereignty in our lives. There are things we're supposed to do. And, one of, and as we look at scripture, we say, well, what are people doing when they're waiting for God, rightly? And the answer is a lot. It's not in any sense a passive set of activities. It's an extremely active set of activities. People who are waiting on God are working. So how, how do we think about that, right? So look for a second, like, think through Jesus' parables about, um, about servants, right? In Matthew 25, there's a parable of the talents. The only guy who gets in trouble is the guy who does nothing. The guy who's stuck, who doesn't risk, who doesn't do something. In Matthew 24, he talks about the servant who the master goes away and he puts a servant in charge of his whole household. And the question is, does the servant do his stewardship until the master returns? Or does he say, the master's been gone a long time, I'm just going to quit. Rather than diligently do the thing that is under my care. The servant has no control over when the master's coming back, what the master's going to do when he comes back, or what the master's doing while he's gone. He has no control over any of that. That is not his realm of sovereignty. It's not his providence. That's his master's providence. What is under his providence and sovereignty is his stewardship, which is caring for the other servants and running the household. And everything about him comes down to whether or not he is found doing that when his master returns. And the same for us. There, there are virtually none of us who all we have left to do is wait. There's something that we're waiting on, but there are a hundred things to be doing while we're waiting. All of the stewardship of doing good, of believing and trusting God, of pursuing godliness. All those things are in your hands to do. They're all to be done while you're waiting. And as Mike will talk about next week, in many ways, God uses the waiting itself to accomplish goods that you're not interested in, but he is. He may care less about your promotion than what happens to you when you learn to wait for him. And if you only care about the promotion or being free from the sickness or the pain and not about what God does in you in the waiting, you'll end up like Jonah sitting under a tree waiting for a city to be destroyed when God is actually changing you. And it makes the process a lot more dangerous and a lot more difficult and a lot more painful for you You can see this in the book of Ruth in chapter 3, right? Um, Ruth, Ruth comes back. She's been working in the field. She's been doing everything that she knows to do, right? And she can't—there's a lot she can't do. But her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, listen, we need to take this up a notch, right? And so she, she beauties her up. Like, she gets her looking good. She sends her to go and to talk to Boaz, like, at night after the harvest. And to tell him, we're waiting for you to be our kinsman redeemer, right? And she does it. And it sets in motion a series of things that leads to her redemption. She still has to wait on Boaz. There's still things that are not under her sovereignty. And she doesn't take hold of anything that's outside of her sovereignty. But she does everything possible within her sphere of responsibility to move it forward. Let me, let me break this down to you for you for six things that I think um, Christians should be thinking about in how we wait on the Lord that are all active things. The first is we need to ex exert faith and hope. That's an active thing. Go back to the first two sermons for that. Actively, eagerly hoping in glory. 
for the beauty that sustains us and encourages us, and the certainty of faith, which supports that hope, which drives us, encourages us, and strengthens us in whatever waiting we're going to do, right? The second thing is, you have to call on God. You have to explicitly pray to Him, right? If one of the reasons you're waiting is because you're sinning and you know you're not doing His will, right? Then repentance is part of waiting on God. Tell God that you know you're wrong. Turn around. Reject the thing you've been grasping about. Like, as I've been talking about grasping, some of you might think, I've been, I've been doing a lot of grasping. Right? That's also called wickedness. Well, the response there is, repent. Turn around. Turn around and come back. And learn how to wait for God. Right? So faith means prayer. Calling on God. Calling on God with prayer. Calling on God in fasting. Calling on God in repentance. And calling on God in worship. Directing your attention directly to God the one you're waiting on, acknowledging that he's there. Because it's part of the reason we're waiting is probably partly because we don't want to acknowledge him any other way. And he's drawing us in some ways, forcing us to recognize that our whole soul is meant to reach out to him and for his sovereignty to work over our sovereignty, for there to be this beautiful dance of creative cooperation between us and God that we reject in our godlessness because we're either stuck or because we're grasping. And he wants us to bring us into that sort of marital union of, of shared work and with different sovereignty that we're supposed to enjoy and love and be encouraged by. So call on God. The third thing is stewardship. Do what is yours to do. Do every good you know to do and do it joyfully, knowing that the master is going to return with a rewarding spirit. And part of that good, we don't just do outside of ourselves by faith. But we seek to cooperate with the Spirit to do inside of us by faith, which is what God calls godliness. We don't just do good. We want God to make us good in faith, to become more like Jesus, to experience the transformation of our mind. And in the pain, even the desperation of waiting, God is doing that. And there's some, there some trials and transformations that we have to go through that always must include waiting for them to do in us what we must, what they must, so that we can be changed. And if we're impatient about that, we've got, we got problems, which is why the next thing is exert patience. Mike's going to talk a lot more about that next week. But we have to intentionally exert the virtue of patience and build it through faith and hope, right? And lastly, we have to dare creatively, right? You may not have exhausted all of your resourcefulness. God has made you in his image to be an incredibly creative creature. You may think that all is, that's left to you is either grasping or waiting and fearing that that's going to lead to failure. But in fact, there may be options that you don't even realize are there, either because they're too scary and risky or because you've stayed fixated on what you want to grasp at. Let it go. Let the grasping go. Let your creativity open up. Realize that you can risk even your life in God's stewardship. You, you have the right to take risks with what God has given you to bring about good ends. Maybe, you, maybe you're just too cowardly. Maybe your mind is too closed. Maybe you're too afraid to be creative enough to do something great. Right? I've seen lots of examples of this. One of the ones that came to mind when I was preparing this is I've seen a lot of couples in our church who've struggled with infertility, who instead of doing everything medically possible, no matter what it meant or what it cost or what it would do, to have a child of their own selves that they just said, I'm stuck, we're waiting. And then they were like, but we want to cherish young life and be involved in giving the gift of life. And then they adopt children. And you don't get children of your own selves. 
but you raise a child made like you in God's image, right? And I'm not saying pursuing certain kinds of aids in fertility are wrong. I think a number of them are wrong. But I think adoption is terrifying, if you know anything about it. If you've watched families struggle, who've struggled with it, or fostering kids, it's terrifying. It looks like a death in some cases. And yet, once you open up in creativity to the possibility of really great risk, it, it, it's another opportunity for resourcefulness to do good under your stewardship as God is working the greater good. And there's a thousands, thousands of examples of that. I know people who have switched to completely other careers, and it turned out that that was an amazing good, and it was a huge risk. I know people who have used their disease that God wouldn't let them out of easily or their pain to learn about pain and suffering and then to share with others and to be a comfort to other people in ways they never thought possible. I've seen people in their psychological healing going through all the pain of trying to deal with stuff and facing it, something they never thought that they would do, and then end up in ministries to other people, helping them heal, helping them have lives that are functional and thriving. I've seen a thousand examples of this, and we underestimate the creativity God has given us. And it's partly because we greatly underestimate the creativity of God. Right? In Isaiah 64, 4, one of our memory verses for this series, it says, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no, one has, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Right? Do you realize that verse is quoted only once in the New Testament? In, second, in 1 Corinthians 2, where the apostle says, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no, and no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. People often say that that verse in 1 Corinthians 2 is about heaven. That God is going to create an amazing heaven for us, and we're going to live in his glory forever, and, it, and nobody has even imagined how great it's going to be. And, and that's, it's true that that's probably the case, but that's not what the verse is saying. Right? What the verse actually says is, the verse right before it says, if the people of this world had understood God's creativity and what God was doing and what he was working, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus was the Lord of glory. He was the king of greatness of everything that is beautiful and good. And people killed him. And they had no idea what God was doing. That through their wickedness, he would create an atonement for all people who, if they would believe and trust in him, they could be saved and redeemed and delivered and transformed and brought into glory and given their own providence and stewardship and transformed through the work of the Spirit and all that. Nobody saw the creative work, not even the devil, nothing, no consciousness, no angel ever perceived the creativity of the Christ and how God would bring redemption through his Christ, through his humility and seeming smallness, but moral greatness. And that he would raise them from the dead. And that he would create this strange thing called the church. And, and, and because we don't understand the creativity of all of that, right? We underestimate the creativity that resides in us. You bear the image of God. God has given you almost immeasurable creativity. If you're willing to risk. And if you, we will see the glory in God not waiting... That there's some things God was unwilling to do. He would not do. He saw them as wrong. He wouldn't choose them. And he also wouldn't wait and sit around stuck, angry that we sinned. Human, oh, human beings sin. Ugh. No. He worked and waited, worked and waited, worked and waited. It is bringing about his glory. And we're, we're called to do the exact same thing, to work and to wait, to work and to wait, both out of faith.
believing enough to act and believing enough to wait. And it, we're meant to be encouraged by the fact that we're, in doing so, we are just like Jesus. We're doing the same kind of work as the Spirit. We're also working providently like the Father. We're bearing his image and doing his work. Smaller scope, same meaning. And in that dignity, we're meant to find hope and faith and courage to do great things. To not fall into the hands of anger and fear and doubt. And to be willing to do everything that's ours to do. And trust God to work what only he can work. To learn how to wait on the Lord. Let's pray. God, help us to wait on you, to learn how to do it, to learn what it means, to see that it is an active and a faith-filled, courageous thing. And help us to neither fall in the drama of doctrine off on the side of languishing and being stuck or in grasping for what isn't ours to do. Lead us by your Spirit. Help us to keep in step with your Spirit and to be transformed in the renewing of our minds to know your good, pleasing, and perfect will. And in all our waiting, to have the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.